Good evening, Hope Reformed Baptist Church. And if you're a visitor, we're very glad that you're with us. You have caught us just uh, at the very start of our uh, sermon series through the book of Galatians. So can you please open up to Galatians chapter 1. All that you've missed was last week. That was our first sermon. And we just recapped the whole book and recapped the storyline and the history of how the book of Galatians was written, that epistle of the first century by the Apostle Paul. So in Galatians 1, we will be going till probably, depending on time, about verse four, halfway through verse 4 tonight, assuming and trusting that the Lord is gracious to us and helps us get there. Uh, to quickly recap, Paul, and you'll read this in Acts chapter 13 and 14, Paul was a missionary sent out to the Gentiles from the Assyrian church in Antioch, which was really the first mixed culture church. They had Gentiles and Jews sitting in the same pews and the same tables. And he was sent out with Barnabas to be a missionary. And he went to Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean, and then looped up into the, the mainland of Galatia or Asia Minor and into the dangerous roads that led to Galatia. And having preached there and bled there and been beaten up there and thrown out of multiple cities, he had yet at long last, by God's grace, planted multiple churches in every city and town and then looped back around them on his way home. But it was when he got home to Antioch, the Syrian Antioch, he found out that in his home church, in his sending church, just over the last couple of years, People had come up from Jerusalem who claimed support of the apostles in Jerusalem. Who could, Now, Jerusalem, remember, is like what Rome is for the Catholics. It's, it's HQ. It's, it's the center of all the hustle bustle, and it's where all the important people live and work and preach from to the Jewish Christian mind. So they came up from Jerusalem, came to Antioch, and in Paul's absence, told everybody, it's great that we all believe in Jesus, it's tremendous, but there is a in and out crowd in this kingdom of God. Uh, hands up the Jews, and if you're circumcised, that's great, you get the VIP seating, you get first take of communion, you get the priority in the kingdom of God. If you're a Gentile, and if you're uncircumcised, you are a secondary citizen, you get less of the benefits of God, uh, although you can rectify that, if you get circumcised and start obeying the Jewish law of Moses. And Paul erupted in debate. And then, just as he went with Barnabas, as he was about to go down to Jerusalem, many scholars think that this epistle was written on the back of a horse going down to Jerusalem to deal with this debate. As he's going down there, that's told us in Acts 15, he hears word that this same heresy has started to get its filthy claws and roots into the Galatian churches that he bled for, that he was beaten for, that he sweat for, and that he planted literally through his own blood. So he's heard that they are doing this, and the people that uh, uh, theologians call these guys the Judaizers in history. That's, Judaizers still exist today. There's one guy that I bump into about every fifth time I'm evangelizing on the streets in Brisbane. He, uh, uh, he's a He's a Judaizer, they still exist today, but in their day, they were the, mostly they were the Pharisees who were converted to Christ or, or appeared to be converted to Christ. And then they brought some of their Phariseeism with them into the Christian religion and tried to, well, basically, they didn't want to waste any, any young adult who does a degree and then ends up as a barista. 
you know this feeling. They didn't want to waste all their education. They didn't want to waste mama and puppy's uh, school money to get them through Jewish law school. So that they, it should still count. So they try and bring their law code into Christianity. And that's what they, the Judaizers had gone around to the churches of Galatia teaching them that the law of Moses needs to be kept. That's part of being in the kingdom of God. You come into the kingdom. You have to obey the laws. Then you're a full-fledged member. And the front door is circumcision. You need to be, faith is great. You have to be circumcised as well. Faith is needed, but not sufficient. It's not sola fide. It's fide important, faith important, but circumcision has to go with it. And so Paul hears this and then writes down this vehement, furious, angry letter. And I think for the sake and the life of the Galatians, they are lucky. They are blessed by God's providence that he did not hear this while he was in person. He would have gone ballistic. But by God's providence, he, he heard it so far removed so that he could write a letter that could be preserved in the angry, vehement, loving letter of Galatians. We're glad that this book is in our Bible. Amen? Amen. And in this uh, uh, book, he seeks to reestablish them in the right and true way because he loves them. He's a good shepherd. He's a loving shepherd. He's a kind shepherd. And for how far off they went, he's particularly and extremely gentle in this letter. Paul goes harsh and he goes hard, but when the gospel is questioned or the gospel is challenged and the, the native Christians don't rise up and start getting rid of those false teachers, it becomes the job of the missionary, of the church planter or the pastor to go and defend the flock and rip out and out, uh, uh, root out all of the heretical, damaging thoughts, beliefs and ideologies that have spread throughout the church. That's what Paul does in this letter. And I want to argue, I want to show you in, in this sermon and in others and in the studies that you do in the middle of the week, the aim is not just to show you the theology of Paul or the theology or the teaching of the book of Galatians, but if we can sort of dabble in some seminary level study, and I promise you we'll make it through it together and it'll be great, but what we're going to do is also descend to the depths of understanding the logic and the flow of Paul's argumentation in this book. It's not just good that you know the, the teaching or the summary of the book. That's good, not enough. It's good if you know the verses and you can remember the verses and, and know the arguments that you might make on the back of them, maybe if you're debating a Catholic. That's good. But to understand the letter itself as God inspired it is on a deep level. We also need to understand and we will be benefited deeper by understanding the actual undercurrent and the flow of argument of Paul in the book of Galatians. This will be in study this week as you gather around the Bible and, and your leaders, the, the faithful men that we've, uh, we've allocated this task, asking questions, explaining uh, and talking together. Part of it is understanding the flow of the argument of Galatians because that makes up the context that makes sense of the text that you read. So here's the, the background approach of these Judaizers, because we take the book of Galatians, we kind of read in between the lines, we can see what his opponents uh, were saying. And here's at least the three-prong approach that Paul's enemies, the false teachers, the Judaizers were using. They were saying, first of all, Paul is not all that he's claimed to be, because he claims to be sent from God when he was really just sent from the apostles in Jerusalem. 
Now we might hear that and go, oh, big whoop, he's still Paul, right? Still got his powers, still healed people, he still died and got brought back after he got stoned. That's pretty impressive. No, this is fundamentally the argument of the book of Galatians. They are arguing that Paul is not an apostle. He's not sent from God. He was sent from the Jerusalem apostles, Peter, James, the others, just like we were, the false teachers were saying. And therefore, I mean, yeah, he's great, he's charismatic, he's an authoritative teacher, but his authority doesn't actually sit any higher than ours. And so where Paul has taught you this much, we will complete his gospel and teach you more. They were saying, he's not an apostle, he's sent from the apostles, the men. He's man-sent, not God-sent. He's an ambassador, he's an emissary, he's just a messenger, he's a missionary. He's not an apostle. And then the second-pronged approach was to say, now, since this Paul, who is not in fact God-sent, but man-sent, since he's a man-pleaser and a coward, and they're big men, so they're saying all of this without him in the room, they say, since he's a man-pleaser and he had so much trouble preaching the true gospel in Cyprus, by the time he got back to the mainland and came to Galatia, he had cowardly edited his gospel to not include circumcision. So that's their second approach, is that this man is, is I'm not going to recommend it because that would be pastorally unwise, but if you have seen the movie Apocalypse Now, anybody old enough or love uh, cult-following movies enough to have watched that, uh, uh, there is a, a, a colonel in the American army who is based in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And he has uh, so penetrated into Vietnam and is making such a bloodbath of the Viet Cong, the Communist Party uh, uh, army, that he kind of develops this god complex and his, his, his battalion turn into somewhat of a cult. They see him somewhat as a god and he is shaved bald, always the crazy guys, right? He's shaved bald, he's painting himself in mud he's, and leading these men in almost a religious fashion in the depths of the jungle. This is Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. And, and so the American government sends a, 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 an emissary of the army to penetrate into that uh, base to find out what's going on and to tell the soldiers this is not coming from the top. This is what we call the man's gone AWOL. He's broken off communications from the top. He's amassed his own following. The president is not commanding this. The, the commander-in-chief has nothing to do with this. You've been kidnapped essentially and you are led to think that this man is president sent, is almost a god in flesh and he's not. And this is what the, the false teachers were claiming, was their, was their, was their approach. Oh, Pastor Paul, uh, he's a zealous missionary, but he's claiming authority he doesn't have. We're here to save you from the tyranny of the Apostle Paul and then change what he taught you. That's, that's what he's doing. And so uh, that was the second argument, was that because he's a man pleaser, because he's a coward, and because he's a tyrant, Paul changed the gospel that the Jerusalem apostles sent him with and now he has failed to, point three, he has failed to teach you that you must be circumcised. You must be circumcised to enter the kingdom of God and be saved. So this is a three-prong approach. He's sent by men, not God. He has, he's a man pleaser and changed the gospel. And thirdly, you need to be circumcised now in order to be justified. That, that's the argument. Now, now, when you understand that, we come to Galatians, and we'll even see it in the first five verses today. And as you go down to verse 10 especially... This is the flow of the book of Galatians. First of all, Paul defends his own apostleship as God sent. 
Then he defends his gospel as the same gospel he and anyone else has preached everywhere else the gospel has gone. And then thirdly, he establishes that circumcision is not required for justification. But I want you to understand this. As he makes those arguments, he makes them from the position of a Christ-centered argumentation. So he doesn't just say, you're questioning my authority, you're you're changing my gospel, you're adding circumcision on my church. He actually turns it right around and says, to question my authority as an apostle is in fact to question Jesus. To question, uh, to re-bring circumcision is, is to deny the resurrection of Jesus. And to add works to the gospel is to deny the cross and the finished work of Jesus. So these are three points that we're looking at tonight. The authority of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the cross of Jesus in the ministry of Paul. So look to Galatians chapter 1 with me. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So starting with number one, the authority of Jesus. Paul is claiming that by them undercutting and undermining his authority, they are in fact undermining Jesus' authority. And so he seeks to establish again Jesus' authority. We see this in the, it's like in the second word, he starts fighting. It's like they've opened up the door and they say, oh, everybody, Pastor Paul's here. Say hi to Pastor. And they can't get through the first phrase before he's elbowed past them and decked the, the, the false teacher in the middle of Bible study and starts vehemently raging. He doesn't even get two words in. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from man or through man. This, this may strike us as we think, how is this humble? How is this meek and mild and gentle and nice and servant leadership? But it is precisely all of those things. Precisely because people would claim that it's not those things, it in fact is those things and it is humble. But sometimes one of the most humble things you can do as a leader or as a Christian is say the things that God has said, even if it makes you look like a jerk or full of yourself or proud. If Paul took our common mindset and addressed them and said, I, look, I'm not going to make much of myself. Um, I'm a sinner just like you guys. And, and I know Christians are Christians and we're all one in the kingdom. So, but I would love if you consider my teaching. He would be doing a tremendous disservice to the church of Galatia because his authority is not his authority. His authority has nothing to do with him. In fact, we could say, Paul has no authority whatsoever. Jesus has authority, and as an apostle, he has all of that authority invested in his words and in his writings. Therefore, if Paul doesn't stand up for his apostolic authority, he's not standing up for Jesus' authority. Because Jesus has invested. When he went to heaven, he chose his 12, and then later on in the life of Paul, and we'll look at this in chapter 2, later on in the life of Paul, when Jesus came down and then anointed and chose him as well, 
That was Jesus saying, in you I invest my, my authority and my command to rule the church through your teaching. So, Paul's authority was not about Paul, it was about Jesus. To attack Paul was to attack Jesus' authority. That's what it means to be an apostle. Uh, the, the, on a word level, apostle just means a sent one. In this sense, it is not wrong to call missionaries or church planters little a apostle, if you want to use a Greek word for the sake of it. Yeah, okay, in some sense they are sent out, they are apostolos. But it's unhelpful because we're used to the phrase, uh, the word apostle, meaning capital A, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ with authority, miracle working power, and scripture writing authority. That's what it meant to be an apostle. The, the Greeks had this phrase, well, the, the Romans in the Roman Empire, they had this phrase, they would say, as the man is, so is the apostle. Or, or to say it another way, an apostle of the man is as the man himself. Which was to say that if a king sent an apostle, they were like, we have this in our legal, you know, international relations with like an ambassador. If you stab an ambassador, if you starve an ambassador, if you raid the ambassadorship uh, building of another nation, let's say America, because they're angry, if you do that in your land, you have just declared legally and very clearly, you declare war on the president and nation of America itself. The ambassador represents the nation and the highest authority that sent it to such a degree that he, he, he is as the man himself. The ambassador says something in parliament. The king or the president may as well have been here to say it because he is legally by proxy representing that person, though he's not present. That's the way the Romans thought of apostolos, to be an apostle. And this is the way that Jesus then uses this language to the 12 apostles, minus Judas who hung himself, then Matthias brought in, and then Paul later on as well. This is the meaning of the word capital A, apostle. On a theological level, it's somebody that was chosen by Jesus to speak and write with divine authority. In this sense, the apostles are a New Testament version of the Old Testament prophets. So where the Old Testament prophets would stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, I have seen a vision, I have heard the word, I have been given a, a, a message, and I call out to the Israelite nation to repent and to obey and to heed my words, or you are disobeying God, so also the apostles were the Old Testament prophets of the church. Their words were written down and preserved. Their commands were authoritative to the point that in 1 Thessalonians 4.8, Paul says, whoever disagree, sorry, whoever therefore disregards this, disregards not man but God. I've met these people. I don't have a problem with God. I have a problem with Paul. You have a problem with Jesus then. No, 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 I'm not saying Jesus contradicts himself. I'm saying Paul contradicts Jesus. You're saying Jesus contradicting himself. I don't have a problem with the, with the gospel. I have a problem with Paul's extrapolations of the gospel. You have a problem with the gospel. 
You're an unregenerate, degenerate, gospel hater, enemy of Jesus, and you're pretending to be a Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't like Paul's writings much, prefers the red-letter Christianity that Jesus spoke, prefers Peter and James and the other Jews. I've met plenty of these people who will claim Paul's just not one of the original 12. This lie, this perversion has been going on since day dot. There's no such thing as rejecting even a word of Paul's teaching and claiming in this he's not inspired, in this he's less than Jesus, in this he's contradicting God, and then still being able to be a New Testament Christian. Paul says, you reject me, you reject God. That's how simple it is. There is no contradiction, and we will see this in further weeks. There is no contradiction between the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached and the gospel of grace and justification that that Paul preached. The same thing. And we will see. So Paul says, to argue this, and this is still in the introduction, he's not even uh, uh, explaining it all, which he does later in chapter 1 and 2. But look at chapter, uh, look at chapter 1, verse 1. An apostle, not from man nor through man. He's saying, I wasn't ordained by a group of churches and men to be an apostle, and then laid hands on me by a church council, So I was chosen by men and then sent with the authority of men. No one laid their hands on me. No one voted for me. No one selected me. No one elected me except Jesus Christ himself. Jesus literally didn't even send another human being to pass the message to Paul. Except when he couldn't see and he wasn't baptized. So Jesus sent the other man into Damascus to baptize Paul. Then Paul's up and he's meeting Jesus in person who teaches him, who ordains him, who commissions him, then sends him. And Paul says in chapter 2, I didn't even ask any of the other apostles for their permission to preach the gospel because I had the authority's permission, Jesus. This is so important. If anybody tells you they've seen the risen Jesus, he appeared to them bodily, not just a vision, but he appeared to them bodily and told me to go to this nation or come and have this mission, they're lying or it was a demon, but they're definitely wrong. Jesus doesn't appear bodily to people anymore. There may be the rare occasion of a vision. People may may, 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 may have... Maybe experiences like that, but for Jesus to physically come down to earth again and appear to somebody bodily that they may interact with him makes that person an apostle and their words and writings and Facebook posts get to be scripture. And you're damned if you don't accept it as so, because to do so, to reject them would be to reject Jesus. This is so important to the argumentation of Paul. There is an enormous difference between a missionary sent out by the laying on of hands of a church and an apostle who comes to you and says, Jesus himself ordained, chose, called, commissioned me and gave me the message I'm preaching to you. Listen to it or you reject God. And we say, well, what's the modern day equivalent of this? Well, there is none. The the, the apostles were a unique generation. They were the first, is what the Bible calls the foundations of the church. This is why we don't have more apostles in that sense. Jesus doesn't re-reveal himself every couple of generations and have uh, this, this ongoing, because that would be like having a foundation every few levels on a building. Like you're in the lift and it's ground level one, two, four, 
ground level, five, six, ground level, eight, not, that doesn't make sense. You're, there's only one ground level. There's only one ground level unless the whole thing was destroyed in the rubble and built again, which the church cannot be. So, there is only one age of apostles. If you want to know the apostolic teaching, or in one sense you say, so does that mean we have no apostles in the church? No, we do. We just have the same 12 apostles that every generation of the church has had because the apostles' authority and message has been preserved and kept for us in the writings of the New Testament, which perfectly explain the Old Testament and preach for us the gospel of Jesus until the end of time. So we do have apostles. It's just the same 12 and Paul. We have the same apostles. It's in the Bible. The New Testament is now where Paul's authority with the other authority, which is just Jesus' authority, is invested. So, Paul says, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. You know who chose me? God. You know who he sent to lay hands on me? God the Son. The incarnate God-man. That's my commissioning uh, 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 team. That's the church council that sent me. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. There you go. The Trinity is the only authority above the Apostle Paul. That's, enorm That's a significant thing to say. That makes an, a lot of sense why Satan would send men into the church to say, oh, he, he was saved later. You know he was a rejecter of Jesus in his earthly life? You know that he, he's not one of the original 12? You see why it is such a wily and cunning lie of the devil to send that into the ranks of the church. And then you see why Paul must, must, must defend his apostleship. Then we can go to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul has already showed us that to defend the authority of an apostle is to defend the authority of Jesus. But now we see his logic turns, and this is evident throughout the rest of the book, that to bring circumcision into the Christian community, not for health reasons or ethnic traditions, but like theologically, if you command Christians and bind their conscience to say, you must be circumcised because look, it's in the Old Testament, that is to tell everybody, oh, and by the way, Jesus is still in the grave. Now, that's pretty hard to like see the logic there. Why? I'm sure some people, like these guys, thought they could promote circumcision and still believe a resurrected Christ. Here's where we come back to Paul's argumentation being important to understand. As an apostle, he's telling you the logic. You never get to go, I disagree with the logic, Paul. Then you're wrong. Repent, agree with Paul's logic. Paul's logic is this. Circumcision is the mark of the covenant of God with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel, which now that we're in the new covenant, that makes that the old covenant. It's not deriding it, it's just saying it's old because there's a new one. Paul's saying circumcision is the mark of the old age, the old covenant, the old administration. Everything before and leading up to the Messiah. Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, is now the mark of the new age, the new covenant, and the new administration. That is to say, in a Jewish mindset of understanding history, resurrected Messiah, new life breaking forth through death, was the prophesied mark that the ages have now come to change over. 
in the Jewish mindset, to declare a resurrection of God's people is to say the next chapter in salvation history has happened or to say the last days have started, the kingdom of God is here, the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation in the new covenant has started to be instated. So for Paul, if you say the mark of the old covenant is still binding, you're saying the new covenant age has not started, which was begun by the resurrection of Jesus. So if we're still under, follow me here, if we're still under circumcision's requirement and the command to obey the law of Moses, then it must be that the Messiah has not been resurrected. And since we put all our hope in Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus must not be resurrected. He is still in the grave. We have no atonement or salvation. Welcome back to the old covenant. And since you're all Gentiles, good luck getting in anyway. That's what Paul is saying. This is his logic. To resurrect circumcision is to rebury Jesus Christ. To reinstate circumcision is to remove the resurrection of Jesus. To bring it back to the church, to preach circumcision is to preach a dead Messiah. But to preach Jesus as resurrected from the dead is to leave circumcision in the grave. You cannot have both. That's why he says here, an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Daniel, resurrection is promised as the Messiah's, the, the coming age, the breaking forth kingdom's day. And, and this is why it's so central to the sermons in the book of Acts. That as the apostles go around to God's people, the Israelites, and they say, he's re resurrected. You killed him, God raised him. You killed him, God raised him. You killed him, God raised him. Everybody killed him. Jesus is raised by the Father, they were claiming the new age has started. Therefore, he's sort of starting right here, that there is no grace or peace for us, the new kingdom has not come, the new covenant is not established, if you still have to get circumcised. Pick one or the other, Paul is saying. He says, grace and peace to the churches of Galatia, from God the Father and Jesus Christ. Grace and peace sort of form this objective and applied gospel. Grace is how we have gospel. Grace is the substance of the gospel that God gives, gives, gives blessings and favor to those who have no merit. He gives grace, he gives grace, he gives grace. In election, he gives grace. In Jesus' death on the cross, he gives grace. In the coming of the Holy Spirit and preservation, he gives grace. But peace is sort of the applied experience. Because God gives grace, we have peace with God who was formerly an enemy. Because God gives grace, we have peace with the law of God which no longer condemns us. Because God gives grace, we have peace in our conscience and can live as a Christian, obeying the law of God and honoring God our Father. Grace from God and peace come in the gospel only as long as Jesus is resurrected. And lastly, look at what he says here in verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. This is the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus' authority is invested in Paul. To deny him denies his authority. Jesus' resurrection cancels out circumcision in the old age. To promote circumcision destroys the resurrection. To add works of the law to the gospel destroys and undoes and pollutes 
the cross of Jesus Christ. They would say, we aren't denying the cross of Jesus. We're just adding to it. We love it so much, we're going to dress it up. Jesus died for us, good. Jesus lived for us and there is our perfect sacrifice. He died for us, great. Let's add our works of the law. Let's help Jesus out. We love Jesus. We're so thankful for the work of the cross. Let's add to it. And Paul is saying that just like a life-saving medicine or a weight-bearing concrete foundation, to add something alien to it is to entirely remove its benefit. You've just mixed the concrete and the wrong chemicals. It's going to crumble and kill everyone in it. You just added something to that medicine. Now it's poison. You just added just a single work of the law to the gospel, and you just destroyed the gospel. Jesus may well have never died. He may as well have never come. If you want to receive him with a little bit of your own righteousness, destroys and undoes the benefits wrought by the cross of Christ. It may seem so small, but any requirement means that you cannot derive any benefit from the gospel whatsoever if you want to join your work to Jesus' work. You're a sinner, and God loves you. And he sent Jesus to be a perfect example for you, and then to earn salvation for you. And he offers that salvation to anybody who obeys very simple, basic requirements in the law. That's a damnable gospel. And anyone who preaches it deserves to die. God loves you. Jesus came for you. He's an example for you. He died for your sins. And he will save you if you just stop sleeping with your girlfriend. As long as you go to church every Sunday. Sabbath is rather important. It's in the moral law after all. As long as you don't do these drugs or substances. You can't get Christians, real Christians don't get drunk. As long as there's no teenage pregnancy, as long as we all, we all get, as long as you're not racist, as long as you're not a straight white male, like we all add on the left, on the right, in the center, we all add our conditions naturally, every one of us, an internal Catholic. Every single one of us, superstitious and an internal Pharisee, that's why we need the Holy Spirit to continually fight our natural intentions with the word of God and the gospel of God. Not a single scintilla or sliver or sprinkle or wisp of human obedience is required to make Jesus work on the cross. 100% efficient and sufficient for you and anyone who trusts in him to go to heaven. Entirely, completely sufficient. The Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Do you hear how completely sufficient it is? There's no as long as, or if you do, or it's just, this is what he did. He died on the cross to deliver us. That was the one thing needed, and it was completely done. We see a few things in this gospel, as Paul just says it in his introduction in verse 4. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us. First of all, it's a personal gospel. It's about a person. We don't just have an event to explain a dogma to learn, a doctrine to teach, a, a philosophy to understand. We don't just have news to share, we have a person to share. The gospel in one word is Jesus. The gospel in two words is Jesus, Jesus. 
The gospel in three words is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If you gave me a few more words, I could make another sentence. But the word, the gospel, the substance, the sum of the gospel is a person. It is a person in Jesus Christ. It is personal. It is about him. Therefore, any attack on the gospel is an attack on him. To love and appreciate and receive the gospel is to receive him. And he doesn't mention us at all. It is all about Jesus. He doesn't mention us at all except for our sins. We're just connected as a conglomerate onto that phrase. Our sins. He delivers us. What do we do? Where's our part? Why isn't Paul giving us much stage time and air time and screen time? We're just the recipients. We're not the contributors. We're the benefactors, not the beneficiaries. Other way around, rather. So Paul is saying, it's all about Jesus. He gave himself. But it's also grace. It's a grace gospel. He gave. Not bartered. Not, not, not gave what we earned. Not, not, not he, that he, he found out what we deserved and then figured it out for us. Run from any gospel that is not centered on Jesus and is not entirely dependent on God's self-giving grace. Flee from any gospel and any gospel preacher and punch him on the way out who tries to make salvation dependent on any work of yours. He gave himself. This is a sacrificial gospel. This is a gospel that centers on a death in the place of others. A bloodletting sacrifice where Jesus dies for us. This is not just that God gives us gold and sustenance and, and spiritual power and, and status and wisdom and, and gifts. It is not merely that in his giving, he is giving something uh, that, that he can bring us. The giving is that he gives himself in our place for our sins, gives himself to die, gives himself to death under the wrath of God, and then because of that, he gives us grace, power, status, merit, and all of the rest. He gave himself. It is a sacrificial gospel. Run away from any gospel that lacks the self-sacrifice of the God-man at its heart. It is also a substitutionary gospel, a penal substitutionary gospel, and this is very similar. He says, he gave himself for our sins. There's this one theologian who was asked, what's the most important word in the New Testament? Thinks a while. He said, if you want one word... It's the Greek word huper. Translated into English, it is the word for. F-O-R. The most important word in the New Testament. Because in that word we see the whole theology of transfer, substitution, being in the place of, being in the stead of, for. He gave himself for our sin in the place of our sin, instead of our sin, to be reckoned with our sin, to be accounted with our sin. This is not just that Jesus comes and pushes us out of the way of the natural consequences of our behavior and saying no to God. And he's sort of like a train's coming and he pushes you out of the way and he takes the natural consequences. No, that takes away the personal, penal, substitutionary element of the gospel which is that God is a holy judge 
and he despises sin and sinners. And though he loves us as creator and gives us grace, he hates the wicked man and woman in the depths of his heart every day. And he burns with anger because we break his law. We despise his glory. We offend his holiness. He burns and while he's patient and slow to anger and he has a long wick and does not explode every day, yet he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty and will vent justly yet personally and intimately from his own self. He will vent his rage out in the most perfect, just, meeting out of anger and punishment. That is called hell forever for anybody that doesn't have Jesus. What we have in Jesus is not some kind of diversion of the wrath of God. Settle down, daddy. It'll be okay. I'll pay their way back home. We don't have that. We have Jesus coming and saying, your wrath is righteous, O God. Your law is broken, O God. Your holiness offended, O God. Here am I, as it is written of me in the book of the law, to do your will. This body you have prepared for me. And he absorbs the good and the just and the holy wrath of God. He is crushed under the good and holy and righteous wrath of God in our place for our sins. Sprint away with another right hook. Run away from any gospel preacher that even hesitates to preach penal substitutionary atonement, the intense wrath of God being placated in the bloodletting sacrifice of his dear son. They even just tell you, I know this is an unpopular doctrine today. Walk out of there. You don't have time for that garbage and that effete, limp-wristed preacher when the gospel is here so sharp, strong, and bold. God's wrath was burning, intense. Jesus died under it to placate it as our only hope out of its destructive path. The gospel is a substitutionary gospel, but it is also an entirely sufficient gospel because in Jesus' self-giving of grace, in Jesus' death on the cross in our place, in Jesus' dying for our sins, he Absolutely, look at the rest of verse 4. He delivers us from the present evil age in accordance with the will of our God and Father. Jesus gets the work done. It doesn't end with an if, or an as long as, or a so long as you also dot, dot, dot. Do you know how long it takes for Paul in this six-chapter book to even get to a single command about what a Christian should do? The end of chapter 5. He doesn't mention a single thing for you to do until the end of the book because the gospel doesn't depend on us. It is self-existent and self-sufficient. It is wholly efficient to save us. Nothing you do will ever help Jesus save you. The only thing you've done is make yourself needing salvation because you're a sinner. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the one who saves, redeems, and delivers us. It is done. It is finished. He delivers. It is accomplished. It is paid in full. Flee from any gospel preacher that tries to add to the works of Jesus your necessary obedience. This is the gospel that Paul preached and this is the one he comes to defend. Paul defends his apostleship because it's Jesus' authority. Paul says we don't need to be circumcised because we're in the new age of Jesus' resurrection. 
And Jesus says that no one can require any obedience of you to be saved because Jesus' work on the cross delivers us. So what does this mean for you? Here's my application. And I'm just going to quote Martin Luther. The guy who loved this book so much. He called he married this ex-nun. He was an ex-priest. And he married this ex-nun because he kept on preaching about the goodness of marriage and sex and relationships against the Catholic Church. He kept on preaching justification by faith and these Catholic uh, nuns would get saved, realize, Jesus doesn't want me to be single. This sucks, living alone with a bunch of other women pretending we like it. We're going to go find husbands. And he helped, he helped uh, 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 smuggle, because Romans 13 and everything, he helped smuggle these nuns out of this nunnery in wine barrels. And all of them, he sort of, you know, they came to church and you know what this is like at Hope. A whole bunch of young ladies come and he sort of shuffles around. He goes, all right, somebody marry somebody. Let's get it done. 12, 12 weddings in a year. But there was this lady who felt betrayed because she wasn't particularly beautiful. And she was the last nun left and she was still single. And she would barrage Martin Luther saying, you promised me a marriage. And he said, no, I didn't. She goes, but uh, here I am still single. You owe, you owe me marriage. You should marry me. Just a tremendously forward woman. And, and eventually he said, not because I loved her, but because at some point I realized the Pope and Satan would hate this. So he married her, which makes a terrible vow on a wedding day. But that's what he says he did it for. And Katerina von Bora was happy enough with that. And so she married the reformer and helped him through his depression, through his loneliness. He was, a, he was an angry, sad dude, uh, uh, if not for the gospel. And especially Von Bora came and helped him. But he called her his Katharina, right? Uh, the, the Catherine was sort of the English translation of her name. And he called the book of Galatians. Some of you women know what it's like that your husband's job is like, or maybe it's his car, or his football team or something, or his fishing hobby is like a second wife. It's like, I feel, I feel like there's a mistress that he just loves so much more than me, and it's his work and his God-given calling, and, he, and I have to beg him for attention. That's not great, but it just happens sometimes. That's how Katerina felt about Luther with the book of Galatians. It did not help that he called that book, My Lovely Katerina. <laughs> Yeah, he, did, he left no mystery about how he felt. He called this book his, his wife. He loved it. Here's what Luther said in his lectures on the book of Galatians. Friend, when the devil throws your sin in your face, that thing you've promised yourself you're not going to do, you promised to God you weren't going to do, you fasted to try and get strength over it, you white-knuckled it, you put all these measures in place in your life, you do it again. It's like your sin just blows up in your own face and you're covered with, with, with muck and mire and oil and, 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 and dust. That's your sin. You just feel idiotic all over again. You, you went to that person's uh, 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 bed again. You, you looked at that thing online again. You, you spoke that way about people in the office again. You, you looked past uh, illegal dealings in your office again. When the devil throws your sins in your face and then declares that you deserve death and hell. Tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name, Satan, is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. 
The only time the devil can make you weary in your salvation because of your sin is if you've convinced yourself that your actions have anything to do with you being saved. What of it? Of course I deserve hell, and much worse than the devil knows. But I know one. Do you hear what he said? He doesn't say, but I know these facts. I've memorized the catechism. He says, I know one. There is a person whose name is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And where he he is, I will be with him also. That's the gospel. He gave himself for my sins to deliver me from this present evil age to the glory of God the Father forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Friend, if you have not trusted in Jesus, or if you realize you're sitting here acting like a Christian and you've been relying on your good works, helping you get to heaven. Reject your good, your good works. Reject your sin. Repent of everything. Trust alone in Jesus Christ. He will redeem you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. We give you glory. Soli Deo Gloria. To you alone be the glory because only by you is there any gospel, any salvation, any reason to be praised or glorified. In us, there is only sin. By nature, there is sin. By our choice, there is sin. In every page of the book of our lives, it is coated with guilt and sin on every line of our accounts before you, God. There is nothing but guilt and sin and condemnation. But in Jesus, there is perfection. In Jesus, there is righteousness. And in Jesus, there is a self giving love in grace to redeem us who deserve nothing but hell. Oh God, that there is even a gospel like this to think about blows our minds. To to then try and wrap our hearts and our minds around it and, and study it and apply it becomes an impossible task. And we thank you that we have eternity to do so. We thank you for this book of Galatians. Lord, because you are sovereign and in your providence, we dare to say this. Thank you that you let those false teachers make their way into Galatia so that by your spirit, Paul might give us and the Galatians this powerful epistle that dares to assure us that we can go to heaven by faith and faith alone. Please save people in our midst, Lord God, all for your own glory in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.